Hello, universe, and welcome back to the Sci-Fi Book Club Podcast, Season 1, the SFBCPC. As always, I'm your host, Brent Aldrich, and joining me via holographic projection is John Love. Hi, John. Uh, hello. We've got a pretty exciting episode of the podcast today. We'll be uh, looking at Dune, written by Earth author Frank Herbert in... Uh, Earth Year, 1965. Absolutely. Very excited about this one. Yeah. It was a long one. Longest book we've read by far. Oh, easily. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. I'll tell you exactly how many pages there are on my copy, I'm sure, at some point. So that you were fry on the sense of hot and dry in a world, world called Ararachis. In the land of riches, spice and the summer and the mice that they call the Mardib. It is with us had a rash and a spoon of Caledon and would take the Gam Jabbar. He has the power to foresee. Look into the past, he is the ruler of the stars. Woo! I would say, including the afterword, 883 pages. This is not the listener challenge, by the way. Okay, I was I was actually just going to check and make sure that we no we weren't in it already. I said the answer. That couldn't be listener challenge. No way. I, that would otherwise, be otherwise. Yeah, that's foolish. It would be unprecedented to do it this early, too. Exactly. Uh, also, there definitely has been nobody that's um, that, that tried to contest. Last last podcast, Listener Challenge, uh, The Science of Titan, with the three uh, uh, with three bounties of space, nobody yes. um, nobody called him with the right answer. No one called? The answer was three. Okay. Nobody contested it. Uh, still 0 for 3 or 4. Mm-hmm. 0 for 4. Over 3? 0 for 4. Uh, uh, listener Challenge. We've had four listener challenges. Zero responses. That's right. Well, um, good work on those then, I suppose. Thank you. I'm just going to keep sitting on my hoard of prizes. Yeah. Somebody's got to get one of these prizes sometime. Mm-hmm. One of these days. Yep. They're going to stick around forever. It's true. So, Dune. I have to say, let me, just to preface this, Dune is one of those books I feel like I have seen for a long time just sitting over there. And uh, it looks intimidating because it is, how many pages you said? 883. Yeah. With the afterword. 883 pages. It's this massive paperback book. Um, it, 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 it looks like the kind of book that is like a, a rite of passage book. You see it over there. You're like, man, I, I want to read that book. But uh, I know I'm going to be in for a lot. Absolutely. And so that's why I've never read it. Yeah. Until I mean, now. We chose much shorter books. This, I mean, I would say this is about eight times as long as one of the books we've already read. The Flatland. Flatland, yeah. Maybe maybe not eight times, but, you know, pretty yeah. close. I mean, that book is like a plane compared to this cube of a book. Oh. <laughs> I, yep. Sure. You don't have to laugh <laughs> I would, at that. I would say they're both rectangles. They're both boxes. Right. In some ways, if we're actually going to talk about their dimensions. This one's just a much larger, more, more voluminous... Yeah. Volume. Interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Good point. We should point out all the times that we say interesting things. Yeah. 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 Um, which is probably not going to be that often. No. No, so. no. Well, Dune. 
Back back where we've started, the title. Yeah, it's one word. Who one, does that? One word, four letters, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a bold move, one word titles. Definitely. No semicolon, uh, subtitle. Nothing. Just Dune. Just Dune. I mean, it, one could think of another title for this book. Maybe call it To Tame a Land. Sure. That seemed, you know, maybe that's what you want to call it. Yeah. You'd be wrong. Mm-hmm. Frank Herbert chose Dune. Exactly. And that's enough. Yeah. I mean, it, it tells you exactly what you're getting into. Dunes. Dunes. Lots of them. Sand dunes. Sand dunes specifically. I, I guess if you thought it was another kind. Are there other kinds of dunes? Can you think of any? Um, nope. Okay. Sand dunes. Right. So where do we go? From, where do we go from here? We start with the title. What's next? The first words of the book. Well, do you want to? Do you want me to, uh, you want me to talk about the the layout and the uh, point font and all that stuff we got going on? What do you I think don't know. about I that? Think people can find out for themselves. They okay. want to read it. It is a rite of passage book. We're going to discuss it. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not going to read it for you. No, this is not an audio book. No way. Sometimes it is. But right now it's not. It, it, it is. I, I do feel like it's one of these books, like um, maybe like The Lord of the Rings. It's one of the books that separates like the true believers from uh, from the just kind of interested. Like uh, maybe I like the science fiction stuff, but once you read this, um, I feel like you you've crossed yeah. the threshold. Absolutely. So in case you thought we were just out here fucking around, yep. We read Dune, yeah. so there's that. Yeah. Uh, we're dead serious, and you you guys should feel lucky that we're around. Mm-hmm. But also, you should read the book. Yeah, just read the book. And then you don't even have to listen to this. No way. Uh, we should maybe have a moment of podcast gold, yeah. roughly like 20 hours to allow the audience to listen, or to read the book. To read and, the then, book. and then everything else will be more useful to them. Right. They close the book, and we start talking again. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Perfectly timed. <laughs> well, it's going to take you at least 20 hours. And if you read it, if you, if you read it for 100 hours, 100,000 hours, you, you will therefore be a Dune expert. Right. That's what they say. Mm-hmm. 100,000 hours of work, and then you're an expert at whatever you do. Yeah. I have no, I have no expertise. <laughs> if we keep doing this long enough, we'll be expert podcasters. That's right. At this point in time, still amateurs. But we read Dune, so we're yeah, we read Dune. That's the rite of passage. That's uh, that's our Gamjabar mm-hmm. trial, if you will. That's right. So here's what you need to know about Dune. There's dunes made of sand on this world called Arrakis. That's how I pronounce it. I pronounce it Arrakis. Okay. Also. There's going to be a lot of questions. I think about pronouncing uh, names and words as we get into this podcast. That's one of the great things about reading. It's all in your head. <laughs> you don't have to tell anyone how you think you pronounce people's names. Unless you're in a book club or a podcast That's or right. a book club podcast. Yeah. Then you do have to stumble over words. Mm-hmm. So if our pronunciation isn't the same as yours yeah. and that upsets you, I don't give a shit. Well, yeah. If you're Frank Herbert, complain. Oh, wait. You can't. Because <laughs> you're... Deceased. So, sorry. Well, that's that's where I want to get into this book then. It's just to say, and we talked about this almost immediately um, upon beginning reading this book. It does not cut you any slack in the first 
300 pages maybe. Especially that first couple chapters, you are just thrown into the middle of a world that you don't know anything about. You don't know any of these characters. You don't know all kinds of language that shows up that Frank Herbert uses. And yet, here you are in the thick of it. Definitely. Um, and, and then it continues on and on and on. And maybe 300 pages in, you start figuring out, like, getting your bearings. Definitely. Yeah, I would say that's probably another way in which it's fairly similar to The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. In that you are thrown into this world, and the world itself is fully developed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all sorts of different... Uh, sides to this story, meaning different factions, different people, they all have their own motives, and none of that is revealed to you easily. You sort of have to work for all of it, which I think is, is interesting. I mean, yeah, in the first five pages, I, I would say there's, there's these terms which only exist in this this book this book's universe, mm-hmm. uh, and we don't really have solid footing to decipher what they mean you know we can tell someone by context generally what they're discussing but mm-hmm. you know we still don't have any of the specifics so it's interesting that simultaneously as we read this narrative and what's happening to these characters we're also figuring out more and more about this world mm-hmm. um which is yeah it's it's a t- it's a tough one it makes the the long yeah. book even more difficult but yes. ultimately more rewarding i would say i i agree i i think that <clears throat> I think you you and I read this basically at the same time, but I think you had read like six pages before I had. <clears throat> right. And just commented on how many characters there already were introduced. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking now at these first few pages and and seeing things like, oh, there's a suspenser lamp. Oh, there's a uh, Kwisatz Hatteratch. There's the Chome Company. And mm-hmm. none of those things are explained at all in no way it's just it's completely taken for granted absolutely that all of these things exist in that world and figure it out or quit reading <laughs> definitely yeah in the in that afterward that i mentioned uh earlier afterward written by frank herbert's son mm-hmm. uh he discusses briefly that when this book was trying to get published by frank herbert he had trouble uh different editors you know, couldn't get through the first 100 hmm. pages because they, again, they, I think, felt that sort of alienation from this world and that, you know, they're thrown into it, but they really don't have a, uh, a real grasp on it, and, and again, until you get further along and mm-hmm. you sort of put these pieces together. Mm-hmm. But, uh, hey, we're, we're, that's the beauty of reading books. We get, to, we get to put some pieces together. We get to figure out the story uh, at the pace Frank Herbert wants us to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, like I think, I, think it's, I think it was fun. Yeah. It's fun not knowing at some, some time and then having a big realization later, like, oh, that's what that means. And that's mm-hmm. why this person feels this way, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're just describing how reading works right now, <laughs> yeah. in case you guys didn't know. Yeah. Uh, there's words printed across page. Yep. In, in the way these books are written, it's you read it left to right, top yep. to bottom. I would say it's the same. Okay. That's how I did it. That's how least. I did it, too. Well, that's one thing we share in common. Did you start at the front of the back of the book? The front of the back? Did you start at the front of the book, or did you start at the end of I the started, book? like, on page 20, about. <laughs> okay. So I haven't read the first 20 pages. Well. Just kidding. You're going to be in for a twist. What? Well, 
fill me in. What happens from zero to twenty? Nothing you need to know. All right, good. That's that's the part where you're really confused. That's the best part about books. Cause you can just skip big parts of it. <laughs> you know, is you, that you don't need that? Is that how you've been reading all of these books? Of course. Interesting. Skimming. Yeah. Well, this this book begins. We're on. We figure out quickly that we are on this planet Caladan, and a few chapters take place with this rather consistent narrative, and then it does this other thing where, in boy, maybe just chapter two or three even, all of a sudden we are in a very different place. Again, more characters we've never met even in the previous chapters, more of these words and objects that have no meaning to us. Absolutely. But all of a sudden now we're, we're with uh, Baron Harkonnen and this I would other say Harkonnen. cast of characters. I'd say Baron. You'd be wrong on that one. <laughs> that one I think you're objectively wrong on. But whatever. Yeah. Speaking of that guy, very unlikable. Let's, well, maybe we should start, as far as characters go, mm-hmm. we should start from the, the beginning, the main protagonist, Paul. Paul. Paul Atreides. Atreides. Well, we're on the same page with that one. I'm just saying what you said in that case, just to make sure we were. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, but yeah, young Paul, 15-year-old uh, son of the Duke of the Atreides house. Mm-hmm. Duke Leto. Son of Duke, I would say Leto. Mm. You'd be wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Galaxy, you decide. But, yeah, we meet Paul, who goes through... This trial, which again we don't really have a, a good grasp on what the significance is, mm-hmm. but uh, goes through this trial um, to see how much pain he can withstand uh-huh. from <clears throat> a what is her title? I don't remember the a Reverend a, Mother, a Reverend Mother mm-hmm. of the Ben Bene Gesserit. Sure, that, well that one's a tough one. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it depends on where you're from. I think. Sure. Benny Jesuit. Could be, if you're from Arrakis. Yeah. Who knows? Right. But that's another one. I use another word that just exists in that world. Mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe you say Arrakis. It's hard to get out of it. Who knows? I like Arrakis. Me too. Good. Same page Same again. Same page. Please, everyone, send in video messages telling us how you pronounce all of these how, words. That would be so helpful. It really Especially would be. if you're from the planet Arrakis. That would really help out, us out a lot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, yes, Paul goes through this trial. It's uh, He's told about the Quisats. What is that? Quisats. Quisats. Yeah, Quisats. Hatterach. And which seems like it's an important title, mm-hmm. which we come to find out, if, you know, after many hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of pages, of pa- literally hundreds, that this so um, sect of uh, or organization of these Bene Gesserit witches called by some people, mm-hmm. they wouldn't probably use those terms, but essentially this this group of powerful, almost magical uh, women trying to, uh, I don't know, I guess take over some section of this like part of the galaxy that they're in uh, through birth, right? Selective breeding. Yeah, through yeah. selective breeding. Essentially. Uh, so yeah, thousands of years. Paul, like Paul is the result of thousands of years of breeding and inbreeding yeah. uh, in order to create this Kwisatz Haderach. Yeah, it's... 
That's just one. That's just yeah. one of a thousand storylines which is going right. to do this thing. So we meet his mother Jessica, who's another character who's with us throughout the entire book, who is a member of this organization, has also been trained in certain ways. We find out she can fight the the weirding way of fighting, and she can she has all these mental capacities and ways of speaking to manipulate people's uh, actions, behaviors, and, and to intuit. Right. There are other motivations. Just using her voice, yeah. Most often, yeah. Doing... So yeah, essentially, she'll her power will be suggesting something mm-hmm. and using a specific tone of voice. The uh, the the listener will be compelled if they're not trained to defend against it. They'll be compelled to mm-hmm. do whatever action this is. Mm-hmm. Pretty powerful, pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. You know, say stop, don't move, and yeah. don't don't hit or shoot me. Um, I can hear it. I know you've been trained, John. Yeah. Sorry if anybody out there uh, just got paralyzed yeah. from that. Right. <laughs> that control of the voice. Mm-hmm. But that's essentially her power, which is pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. A lot of the well, some of the other characters who are um, soldiers of this Duke Leto, they come to be scared of the Lady Jessica, mm-hmm. not not realizing her powers. The, the degree of her powers early on, and uh, yeah, I mean that that shows up later mm-hmm. on. But uh, so then we we jump then pretty quickly to the Baron Harkonnen and his entourage, um, where we get this whole new cast of characters. Mm-hmm. There's Baron Harkonnen. There's his two nephews. There is his Mintat. So the the Mintats, uh, each house has one. There's his Peter something something, Peter DeVries, yeah, I believe, and uh, and there's um, Thufer Hawat. Yep, um, yeah, that's how I pronounce it. House Atreides, both of whom. So these are another things. These mintats are referred to all the time. Never quite explained what a mintat is. Right. Um, almost again until you get to this appendix at the end. Yeah, the uh, the terminology of the Imperium is a mm-hmm. is a very late. Uh, Shows up in the book very late, which is, yeah, essentially describing what all these terms mean in this world, which is very, you know, very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have been at the beginning of the book, <laughs> yeah, or at least a reference to it mm-hmm. at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we're sort of left out right. in space for a while, and we figure it out. Well, I thought that was actually really interesting because I, I agree. It'd be one thing to see all these definitions at the very start. And have a little bit of a grasp on what some of these things were. I also, though, get into it at the very end, where so you've just finished the book and then you read this definitions, mm-hmm. and so then you almost have to like look back at the entire narrative and piece it back together, like reconstruct it again now based on your new knowledge of the actual definitions of things. Definitely. Which, granted, that would only this is only true probably the first time you read this book. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, to me that brings up sort of the postmodern literary tradition a mm-hmm. little bit, which is fairly fractured and usually is fairly complex and a lot of storylines going on simultaneously. Um, often, the the endings of such books. Uh, so I'm thinking of guys like uh, Thomas Pynchon, uh, David Foster Wallace, Don DeLillo, etc. They uh, the endings of the books they tend to have sort of these trajectories uh, these storylines which seem to be coming to a head 
but you don't really get the the full story. You, you sort of have to predict how it happens beyond, which is actually what the Mentat's power is. Yeah. The, these Mentats, they can, you know, they're essentially strategists who, through their training, can foresee these events by seeing how all these, you know, differing sides uh, are going to come together at mm-hmm. some point. So you essentially become a Mentat by, by having to do that at the end of this book, I think, too. it's There, there are some, some loose ends as far as what's going to happen in this book at mm-hmm. the end still. But especially with all these appendices at the end of the book, which give you a lot more information about some of the other things that were happening in the book in a, in a way where it's kind of fractured. Mm-hmm. You get like this eagle-eye view of the whole story mm-hmm. after you've read it from a more first-person perspective yeah. the first time through. Well, and that's, that's the other interesting thing about the structure of this book as well. So every chapter begins, first of all, with this paragraph maybe of text or a quote or something mm-hmm. that is quoted, right, from this different journals or books by the Princess Irulan. said Irulan. Irulan. I would, I would say that. But, you know, again, yeah. it's up for debate. Yeah. Galaxy so so every, the beginning of every chapter has got another book that exists within this universe that is then referenced before every chapter. And then there's also this thing that will happen throughout the chapters where there will be words, paragraphs, sentences written in italics that reveal characters' thoughts. So you've actually got several levels of awareness more than the characters in the book. Um, So at, at any given time, like the quote at the beginning might even tell you almost exactly what's going to happen in the coming chapter. Definitely. But then also you get these internal monologues. And so you have more information about what one character is thinking about another that they might not say, but they think. Right. So it, it gets to be just a really like dense Definitely. Um, reading. Yeah. Involuted. It's yeah. I mean, again, speaking of that postmodern tradition, I think yeah. that's uh like meta-textual and that there's these texts within the text that are referenced and, and also sort of a meta-awareness. So, again, the, like the ability to stand back and see how these things are going to play out based on this information that we have that the characters don't necessarily have. Yep. Uh, it's Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to, I think, think about the novel and the, and the narrative structure the reader almost has a priv- has a privileged position in that way yeah. uh, in in the actual sort of story world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we become this mentat or this all knowing yeah. uh, being at some point in time, which which is interesting. Yeah. So the general gist then of the story is that once we are introduced to the these houses, House Atreides and House Harkonnen, we find out that the Padishah Emperor, who controls all of these houses. Everyone wants to House of Treaties goes to rightfully take over the planet Arrakis, aka Dune. House Harkonnen is has got this shady deal with the Emperor to overthrow House of Treaties, and that happens. Um, and then very fairly I, I won't say very, but fairly early in the in the novel that happens. And then the rest of the novel we spend with Paul and Jessica among the Fremen, mm-hmm. the natives of Arrakis. It's a very rough sketch of a long, convoluted book. Yes. 
Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should just pick out some some themes which yeah. which hit us, and you know, because again, we're not audiobooking this. If you want to figure out what actually is going on for yourself, you should read it. Yeah, but we're here to just to enliven your life. What are we regards here for? to Dune? <laughs> Uh, I would say we're here to enlighten people's lives with regards to Dune. Okay, that's Good. that seems like my mission in in this life. Mm-hmm. Galaxy, you decide. <laughs> so I guess, well, I I think maybe something that I want to bring up now, okay. since the most recent podcast we listened to was the Science of Titan. Yeah. I, I think I found really interesting some of the ways in which this book thematically overlapped, or just some little. Think vignettes which relate to some of the themes of the previous the previous book, The Sirens of Titan. Yeah, I mean this book was written after The Sirens of Titan, so it's you know Frank Herbert ostensibly read it and you know maybe based some of his decisions off of that book. Who's to say? But um, I don't know one one of the first ones. Well, I guess just as far as us see us as readers seeing. The trajectory of these characters, like we know more what's happening to them. A lot of talk about destiny happens. Yeah. So again, thinking about when and where any person in this book, any character, has the free choice to mm-hmm. make. You know, how free are they? I don't know. I think that's an interesting place where there's overlap, which mm-hmm. the previous book, you know, there was not a lot of, of freedom in, in some mm-hmm. sense. So I think that's kind of interesting. I have an exact example of that. I, I, I thought the same thing, actually. And I even marked a couple times within my copy of the book here very specific examples where I saw that happening. So um, a few times, Frank Herbert repeats this a variation of a phrase. The first time I noticed it, Jessica is thinking. And it says, plans within plans within plans within plans, Jessica thought. Have we become part of someone else's plan now? Um, and that idea of a thing within a thing within a thing Definitely. happens over and over. Later on, Fade Routha, one of the Harkonnens, uh, wondered if Hawa had another plan for the Serena. A faint within a faint within a faint. And, and that sort of phrase um, of saying... This is maybe someone's plan, but it's within someone else's plan, within someone else's plan. Yeah, I mean, I even I wrote the Sirens of Titan uh, in the margins of the book here, um, and I, I guess we didn't talk about uh, the actual postmodern nature of the Sirens of Titan itself. But yeah. you know, the fact that that the faint within a faint, uh, the plan within a plan idea, that's directly relating to the fact that what you're reading is a book. And that the plans within plans take place within this narrative. So mm-hmm. it directs, like, it, it points to the actual text, the thing that you're reading, in a way that, you know, I think is, is one of the uh, primary or most well known aspects uh, or characteristics of postmodern literature. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely one. And that, that's absolutely a theme throughout the book is, like, how much is predetermined. Yeah. Paul sort of wavers in and out between uh, a total awareness of what's going to happen next and, and and we'll come to these different events. Uh, I can think of the first time that he is challenged in, once, once he enters the Fremen tribe he's challenged to a knife fight to the death and he can normally foresee the future 
to some degree, but at that point, everything past that mm-hmm. moment was totally black. He didn't know what was going to happen, meaning ostensibly that he could have died in that moment, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, is interesting to think about. Like, if, if you could see the future, how much potential is there to change it? Well, right. I think Paul, you know, has that capacity. He can, he can be like Salo in the Sirens of Titan, mm-hmm. and you know, at any point in time, rip himself apart or. Deter- like make decisions which actually matter and resonate and change things mm-hmm. um, even though even up to the end he, he foresees the Fremen going on this jihad which he does is trying to stop kind of desperately mm-hmm. we don't don't really find it if he does or right. not yeah I Paul acquires this this vision where he can see multiple timelines progress into the future and has has this um, consciousness not available to everyone else. Um, at, at one point, it's described, though, and I made another note here, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future, the winds of the past, the one-eyed vision of the past, the one-eyed vision of the present, and the one-eyed vision of the future, all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time becoming space. I actually just thought that that reminded me a whole lot of a few podcasts ago when we were talking about Tesseracts, and and that ability to like be at a fixed space time in which multiple timelines are available to you, and 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 so with Paul, there's some I think sense of that in which certainly there's these outside forces controlling many of his decisions and actions, but then there's also this other layer of of his own ability to see lots of these different potentialities I guess mm-hmm. yeah I mean I, th- I don't remember any specific moments like in terms of where it takes place in the book the page number or the quotes but I feel like there's some definite references to him being a sort of fourth dimensional mm-hmm. um, or extra dimensional being at some point by yeah. being able to being somewhat released or fluid with with regards to time mm-hmm. seeing yeah, several like timelines, both backwards and forwards simultaneously, mm-hmm. which, yeah, I mean, totally is in line with with that that book as well. I mean, I, there's I'm gonna go into one more yeah. connection to the Sirens of Titan. So, and man, it's really tough to bring up any particular moment in a book because I feel like I have to discuss who all the characters are and what the. All right. But I'm not gonna do that, at least not in full. So, <clears throat> there is. A character who we later find out or led to believe that he was essentially the leader of the Fremen. Uh, that's Liet Kynes. Keynes? Yeah, I've it? been saying Kynes. I think it's Kynes. So Liet Kynes, we're sticking with that. He is. He actually works for the uh, Imperial em- Empire, yeah. and uh, but also is a Fremen born of. Um, his mother is like born and raised on Arrakis is a Fremen but there comes to be a point where you see that he is continuing this plan for the planet Dune to make it have running water mm-hmm. which is you know a, like a 500 year plan essentially and everybody in this Fremen society is working towards it yeah. realizing that they will never see the result of it but anyway so so Liet Kynes helps out Paul, helps him escape the Harkonnens 
I'm going to say Harkonnen because that's the way I pronounce it. Okay. But he helps him escape, he, and then he himself gets killed by the Harkonnens. And as he is lying on his planet that he you know, cares so much for, um, before I think he's what eaten by a. There's some there's suggestions that sort of implied birds, sort of implied that he's either eaten by I don't know something uh, hawks or maybe worms. Which we haven't even talked about sandworms yet. Oh, I can't wait. We'll get there. But anyways, uh, there's one moment where... So, this is... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to audiobook this one section real quick. Mm-hmm. So then, as his planet killed him, it occurred to Kynes that his father and all the other scientists were wrong. That the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. So, mm-hmm. keep that in mind as I audiobook... The book we're not even talking about. What? Yeah, this is maybe a first. Mm-hmm. Audio booking, not the, not the current book. So this is from The Science of Titan. Unk, if you recall, hopefully you're listening to these in order, otherwise this might be totally nonsensical to you. But Unk, one of the main characters, or the main character in The Science of Titan, uh, reaches Earth and has this whole... Um, church waiting for him, waiting for this traveler from outer space to come back to Earth, and the first thing that he says, so uh, they ask him, these people ask Unk when he reaches Earth, who are you? He says, I don't know my real name. They called me Unk. What happened to you? They ask. Uh, He shook his head vaguely. Uh, Essentially what he says is, I was a victim of a series of accidents, Mm -hmm. as as are we all. So, I don't know. I mean, that, that is the really... An interesting part with regards to this um, trajectory or plan that the world may have for us, or that we have for the world, mm-hmm. is that you know we can set all these plans up, and they can have very complex uh, setups that take many years and many people, and they can sort of all be undone with a series of accidents, or the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe something really good befalls you mm-hmm. uh, as a, as the uh, result of an accident, but you know that like the accident. As a really powerful force within people's lives, I think is you know runs through both of these books in mm-hmm. an interesting way. I just want to back up for a second too and talk about that Kimes character because if I was picking favorites in this book, I'd probably go with him. Actually, he was a character who had two legs. Uh, I don't know that I ever said that explicitly. It's you know, it's <laughs> he did. We all know it. Uh, he um, he's one of these characters who's got a pretty dynamic role in the book, as far as he works for the emperor, who is clearly uh, that's the wrong team to be on in this book, and, and and is asked essentially to betray the Atreides family, um, but then over time, well, we find out a lot of his backstory with being uh, a, a native Fremen, he definitely changes sides and saves Jessica and Paul later on in the book. The moment when he starts to change the sides, though, is another image that reoccurs throughout the book. So they're at this dinner party. Jessica says something about having this this greenhouse that's on their home, and they're saving it like for the future of Arrakis. And that's when he, he starts to, like shift in his thinking I think and in his character and there's a lot of this idea of looking at the thing that 
as it exists. So looking at this desert planet and and saying and and thinking about it with this like five hundred year vision, which I think is similar in some ways to Paul's like past, present, future vision. Um, that these other characters, all of the Fremen, have this idea that in five hundred years or more, the planet, the entire planet, could look entirely different, mm-hmm. essentially, and and that is essentially what keeps them going and motivated. Absolutely, no, it's uh, that that scene. That, I mean, I remember that scene took place pretty early on in the book, which what, I mean, what made it interesting. Now looking back, was was how many. So at this table, there's Liet Kynes, there's three members of the Atreides family, there was someone from this, like, merchant guild, mm-hmm. there was a smuggler, there was, I mean, there's just a ton of different uh, characters representing all of the sides of yeah. the struggle for this, this spice, which is mined on the planet Dune, that, uh, I mean, that's what's really what everybody is kind of after this this spice which gives people some sort of prescient visions and also sort of imply that it helps people stay young in some ways mm-hmm. so that's what most people are after uh that's that's the directive of this guild uh every, everybody's like after something different and at that table through yeah. the subtext of the dialogue you can start to find out who's on whose side and mm-hmm. what they're actually after mm-hmm. which was yeah, I mean, thinking back to that moment, how how much actually, uh, I don't know, how much was at stake in those in these small gestures that took place during a yeah. dinner? Yeah, it turns out to be kind of. Uh, I mean, talking about the whole theme of the book in, in just that moment, especially with yeah. regards to what I even just mentioned, with uh, everything is a series of accidents and errors, mm-hmm. like one misstep at this table and everybody's now revealed something of themselves and their motives that changes their character's paths and mm-hmm. trajectories. So it's weird that the accidents, again, sort of give people the potential to disobey, if that's the right word, something of their destiny mm-hmm. or whatever. Good one. We didn't even talk. I, I feel like we need to explain more about this planet, too. Right. So it's covered in sand. There's this spice melange. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, is that's the only place in the whole universe that it comes from and it essentially you know there's this like economic it's like oil or like crack <laughs> uh, you know kind of both it's a spice you can only get on Arrakis so everybody's there for it there's the this Chome Corporation that is never entirely explained but they're definitely involved in the sales of it there's the guild who are the only people who can transport anyone from place to place and they get their like directional navigational sense from from consuming the spice mm-hmm. the fremen use the spice everybody does and so the spice is the subtext to like create the the pressure in mm-hmm. the narrative because otherwise no one would care about the planet Dune. There's also um, the Fremen who are native and who live in places that are actually like amazingly fertile that they've cultivated over some years Mm -hmm. and no one else realizes just how many Fremen there really are that they have these like oasis 
Oases. Oases. Oasi. So there's the spice. There's the fremen. The fremen. Uh, if you if you eat lots of spice, it'll turn your eyes blue. Blue on blue. Yes, and not yeah, not just the irises. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the whole eyeball. Yeah. Yeah. The irises might be a darker blue than the. Yeah. Yes. Than the blues of their eyes. I think. Do you think that that's a? Do you think in the Fremen uh, army, like with Stilgar, whoever who's their leader, do you think that when they go into a fight, uh, he says like, "Don't shoot till you see the blues of their eyes." Don't shoot see the whites of their eyes. Well, yeah, they're fighting off-worlders. Well, they're probably almost always fighting off-worlders, right? Okay. Do you think that the <laughs> the uh, do you think that that has been ever said before? Before you said it now, I think I just invented it. I think so too. I'm good. Don't ever see, yeah, until you see the whites of their eyes. That's good. Yeah. Because, well, especially because, and we could talk about this whole thing for a while, the primary weapons used in this, on this world, yeah. well, and not even just on this world, just seemingly in this entire sector of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, is melee weapons, swords, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, knives, what have you, which is. Well, it's not directly addressed. I mean, but they mentioned they have nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. They have lasers. Las guns. Yeah, las guns. They have, you know, any number of different types of of weaponry. Mm-hmm. But they use a lot of hand to hand melee. Yeah, they do combat weapons. And uh, I don't. I mean, this is an aside in some ways, but I think you know it's interesting to think about. How when when weaponry became more sort of abstracted in some ways, so the distance between combatants increased, it became sort of easier to actually take the the steps to cause violence on somebody. You know, when when you had to look at somebody right in the eyes in order to stab them. Uh, I'm sure it was a lot harder moral decision to actually go through with it versus, you know, once, you know, once we had the drones mm-hmm. that were, took a huge, you know, they were a huge factor in the hashtag wars. Mm-hmm. You know, once you're looking at a screen that's looking at your enemies and you're essentially playing a video game of some sort, that must, you know, it has to be way easier to sort of in quotes, pull the trigger mm-hmm. than actually stabbing somebody in the chest. Yeah, I th- that's that's a really interesting thing, and it is one of those things that happens in this world that I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to, I guess, again, until getting to that appendix at the end where it explains some of the back history of this universe, mm-hmm. such as the Butlerian Jihad, but, yeah. in which... Um, it was a crusade against computers, thinking machines, and conscious robots. Yep. Um, and and so, again, after reading this entire book and then reading that little bit of that little tidbit of information, you think back on the whole book and say like, oh yeah, there were there were no robots, there were no R two D twos, there was none of three POs. No. No. Rolly ball droids. No ball droids. No ball droids. <laughs> yeah. No, I no droids of any kind, as far as no, I'm no. concerned. No, no phone dr- that uses droid operating systems. Uh-uh. No salos. No salos. Thank, mm. thank God. Yeah, that's which is 
on some level it could be said like oh well that that's a convenient way to think about or as far as writing a book like okay now i don't have to worry about all this other stuff because mm-hmm. we got rid of it at some point or, or in this world i got rid of it but you know it's it is a very i mean potentially like a giant battle this this struggle which has been tackled in many other science fiction books yeah. like this is a book by the Terminator, for instance, mm-hmm. like uh, sentient robots. We have to destroy them or they're going to destroy us at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that it happened way in the past in this book. Yes. Uh, we're beyond that point. So we've survived it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I really, that's a really cinematic yeah. thing to, to think about. And mm-hmm. again, the topic of many, many works of science fiction. Well, that's another, just this entire. In, in doing some research, I, I found the phrase the Duneverse, which I think is genius. Yeah, I'd say it's a pun. Yeah. Um, so, in the Duneverse, there's, it, it, it's unclear as well exactly how that universe relates to our universe. There's clearly moments at which it does. We have humans, for instance, and it seems as if they're related to right. our history of humankind. From humans, we have the color blue, which, as we all know, mm-hmm. exists, existed in your time, exists in our time. Mm-hmm. We have... I have another instance of this, but it's going to take me probably the rest of the podcast. But what of we the have, color blue? No, of, of a thing that exists in our world and their world. Can I guess? Sure. Uh... Um, let's see, there's words? Got it. N- nice. There's so many words in this book. So many words. Yeah. And there's so many words in, in our universe. Mm-hmm. Moment of podcast gold, think about all those words. Mm-hmm. And we're done. So, at, at some point though, there's these weird references that I really, that was when I really started thinking like, okay, this is clearly our world is maybe prehistory for this universe. So at some point... We're like Jurassic World. Uh, we are like that. Pretty much. Nice. At some point they mentioned something about Heisenberg and uncertainty, which is, um, you know, from the, what, 1950s on... Talking about Breaking Bad? Sure. <laughs> and then there's also... That was like 2010s. Yeah, I think I'm not totally up on my pop culture history from 900 years ish ago, mm-hmm. but yeah. Then there's also though all of there's this reference to like the OC uh, Bible, the Orange Catholic Bible, um, which is quoted often. And then in the appendix, there's a whole thing about the history of religions in in this universe. Mm-hmm. And so it it does seem as if our universe relates to the Dune universe in many ways. And yet, it's still a bit unclear. Also, just this thing about, like, so why do we have these, like, medieval houses happening in outer space, basically? You know, have right. we, we've gone back to kind of a feudal system in, in Dune. Yeah. With, with the knives, with the swords, with the houses, with the castle. We're in a castle. Right, yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah, the very beginning of the book starts in the castle, Caliban. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, it is all... You know, that's like the sort of beauty of, well, not only like the book itself, but the appendix, the appendices, where 
a lot of that is really addressed. Mm-hmm. Like, well, this is sort of why that happens. But there still are a ton of questions regarding the world yeah. that are sort of up to us to figure out mm-hmm. and, to, and really think about, you know, once we have this war with the machines, what will be left and mm-hmm. who will we trust and who will we look up to and, you know, what technology will we allow, etc. But this is just a quick aside. It's, it's related, but... I like how the Mentats are actually called human computers. Yes, right. So, so yeah, I mean that's yeah. this this thing you know a, a human being who has capacity for empathy. You know, has all these things that a computer can't have in mm-hmm. some ways. Okay, we trust them to be our computing machines in yeah. some level. It has to be first off something that we can kill uh-huh. and can't Im- like immediately reproduce itself mm-hmm. in order to to trust it. Mm-hmm. Right, and it, st- and it starts from the direction of human towards computer. Mm-hmm. Whereas we think about like that, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? It starts the opposite. It starts with machine, and increasingly trends towards human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that distinction too. I mean, it seems like in the Dooniverse they would have killed all of the androids for sure. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, potentially all of these books are taking place in the same universe. Yeah. Right. We don't know. Yeah. Well, so, and as you were saying, just in terms of, like, explaining things in the appendices that refer back, but what I, what I really love then is even in the appendices where a lot of these get explained, so even, like, in the definitions, in the terminology of the Imperium, things get defined, but even in those definitions, there's still references to things where it's like, well, I don't know what that is now. Yeah. So, you know, one of these dis- uh, definitions about Salido projectors, which are mentioned, um, these projectors. And so it explains it, you know, how that it works with this 360-degree reference signal. But then, in the definition, it says, Ixian Salido projectors are commonly considered the best. And it's like, well, what is that? Yeah, um, this corporation, which yeah. just briefly mentioned in the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- that's what makes... A work like this, which is sprawling and convoluted, it, it's what makes it extra compelling and worth reading. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it gives you that payoff after all of these mm-hmm. these minutes spent. Is that it seems like even though we have all of this information over thousands and thousands of words, uh, there's still more that Frank Herbert, the author, knows that we don't know. That's right. And we're you know. But with a, with a mention like that, so we're led to believe, okay, well, there's this one brand of this type of projector. There's probably other brands, <laughs> yeah. and there's probably a really uh, hard-fought capitalistic war for, for control of, you know, if somebody wants to have a monopoly in that yeah. uh, field. Like, so there's, you know, there's economics going on behind the scene. There's politics going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a whole new world way beyond this world that we were even in like this world that we're on I guess which is almost maybe one of the beautiful parts of him referencing all these other planets mm-hmm. is that we can see all the stuff that's happening on Dune which is thought to be this deserted mm-hmm. desolate place where nothing could possibly thrive but you know tons of intrigue and storylines happen here so what's that say about any other world like yeah you know, all these worlds have their own stories, um, including, like I said, the, the one that seem, seemingly 
surprised the least, mm-hmm. and that's where the story is set. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is which is really nice. I mean, and this gets complicated, and the older Keens, who is only really Pardot. Yes. Um, he gets a biography in an appendix, and as Leet Keens is dying, has this vision of him like. I imagine like Obi Wan Kenobi appearing. Sure. Um, he, we find out, Pardo Keynes says this thing about what is it about a hero being dangerous or right. um, about the last thing that Dune needs is a hero. Is a hero. Yes. And so this whole story is set, as you say, on this world that seems like the most barren, um, the least likely place for this story to occur. And yet we have these Fremen who turn out to be these amazing people. But then we also have this narrative of Paul, who really is, and, and it's written all over the, the hero's journey. He's definitely your classical hero. Yep. But in ways that I, I didn't love him, actually, um, right. at all. <laughs> sure. Um, I liked a lot of other characters way more. Um, he seemed like he was on this hero's journey regardless sometimes mm-hmm. of the other characters around him. Um, so I definitely identified with other characters way more than him. And maybe in some ways that's actually like another comparison to the Lord of the Rings with like a, a Frodo who is definitely the one who's like the protagonist on the journey. But by the end of it, you're like, well, there's other people I like a lot more than you. Right. <laughs> Yeah, which is, uh, I don't know, an interesting way to think about, uh, well, to think, this is talking about books in general more, like the structure of stories, like how much do we need to like the main protagonist? Yeah. I mean, again, just go back to Sirens of Titan, especially right away, I mean, right, right away, eventually we come to, I think, really um, like uh, Malachi Constant, Mm -hmm. but the very beginning of the book, he's portrayed as this an asshole playboy yep. and you know why should I care about this character he has everything going for him etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, yeah. yeah I don't know like it's not really a, a moral ambiguity but it's um, yeah I don't, I don't know you're the person who pushes the story forward because it seems seems like their story to be had I mean their mm-hmm. their tale to be told their journey that they go on but uh, I don't know it's almost just like this character is just useful on some levels as a place to have interactions with people and yeah. and them sort of have their own interesting stories and spinoffs off of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's because there's so many threads going on. Like we needed Paul to really hold everything together. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, like, well, just one other um, Sirens of Titan tie-in almost that I, I thought started to happen a few times. There's a few of these scenes, and there's definitely this overriding ecological message to this book, right? About mm-hmm. the dunes and turning those into healthy places and all this stuff. Anyway, though, there's a few scenes that happen over and over that definitely reminded me of those scenes in Sirens of Titan we talked about, like where Constant is looking out at this beautiful planet and saying it's mysterious and beautiful and terrifying all at the same time. I thought that almost 
very similar scene happened a few times in this with different characters throughout. The first one is the Duke while he's still alive looking out at sunrise. So this often happens at sunrise or sunset, which is obviously like another threshold um, device. Mm -hmm. Um, Him looking out saying, it was a scene of such beauty it caught all his attention. He'd never imagined anything here, Arrakis, could be as beautiful as that shattered red horizon and the purple and ochre cliffs. Beyond the landing field where the night's faint dew had touched life into the hurried seeds of Arrakis, he saw great puddles of red blooms and running through them an articulate tread of violet like giant footsteps. It's a beautiful morning, sire, the guard said. Um, dot, 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 dot. And it could be a hideous place, the Duke thought. That happens again later, though, with Jessica at one point. That happens later with Paul. And that seems to be one of those scenes that actually slows down and is descriptive in some ways. And, like, there's there's almost a pause in the narrative for that to happen, like, for these characters to see the landscape in that way. Right. Yeah, I mean, thinking again, well... Yeah, it's interesting to to take the pacing of the novel from essentially the awareness of some of the characters. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the the pacing is sort of breakneck. There's a lot to be said, and it has to be said quick because yeah. even though it's a long book, it could have been a lot longer with all the stuff that was happening. Mm-hmm. And to give the characters' own awareness sort of this highlighted, like longer, mm-hmm. like section of. Description, descriptive text um, regarding what they're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it becomes another interesting, uh, not necessarily metafiction, but you know, we're aware of the story mm-hmm. like that's being told at some sometimes. I, I guess I had um, I had one at least one more uh, moment that I wanted to talk about sort of idea of metafiction or postmodern stuff. I don't know why I'm why I'm so interested in this with this book, but. Uh, I, I do think that this this novel, out of all the ones that we've read, seems to be the most interested in some of these, like, playing with the narrative structure of books themselves. There's a moment very, very late on in the book, uh, page 783, um, so one of the last few pages of the actual story, where, um, so we get the italicized text, which is the internal... Dialogue of Paul. So he says, um, after fighting with, or about to fight with this Fayud Ratha Harkonnen, uh, essentially for um, I, I don't know to, to sort of show. So the emperor is there at this time. I mean, this is very late on in the book, um, and I don't need to give away all of what happens at this moment. But but he's going to fight uh, Fayud Ratha Harkonnen for angling towards the throne is what he's after in some ways. Paul Paul sees this as, as, as a political gesture, a time to perform something like that. But, so his internal dialogue, and again, this, this brought me out of the text, but not in a really distracting way. Like, I was just like, oh, we're still talking about a book. Mm-hmm. So Paul thinks, this is the climax. From here, the future will open, the clouds will part onto a kind of glory. If I die here, they'll have sacrificed myself, that my spirit might lead them. And if I live, they'll say nothing can oppose Muad'Dib. Uh, so it just seems like at that moment, Paul's internal mo- monologue is Frank Herbert saying, yep, I'm about done. Yeah. 
But more can happen even after it's all done. Yeah. Uh, which I think is kind of funny. Mm. And, uh, but also, you know, it, it definitely highlights that moment. Like, yeah, I mean, this is where all the stakes are laid bare and you figure out, mm-hmm. I don't know, essentially the trajectory that this, this story is going to take, mm-hmm. which takes, uh, Frank Herbert five more novels, I guess, to get through. Yeah. So yeah, I guess we should mention that too. Uh, Dune, this is one of six in the, uh, saga of Dune written by Frank Herbert. So maybe we'll get to the other ones, mm-hmm. but, uh. But yeah, there's there's definitely once it's all, you know, once the book's over, there are tons of things still sort of left uh-huh. up in the air. Well, how many more books that he wrote? Five. Five more for this series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I hope that in those other five books that he wrote, there's just as many references to coffee as there are in this book. Yep. I could not get over this because. <laughs> Over and over and over to the point where I had to mark it and make notes every single time. Everybody's just drinking coffee all the time, constantly. Yep. Um, I thought, why are they fighting for spice? Because everybody's got all this coffee already. It might as well be the coffee planet. <laughs> fighting for spice. Yeah. That could be the name of the episode. Fighting for spice? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Uh, that could have been an album by the Spice Girls. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been. Spice Girls 3.4. There was... Who do you think would win in a battle royale of all the Spice Girls? Melange? Melange Spice? Melange Spice, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. For sure. She had the prescience. You know, she could see into the future. Mm-hmm. Everybody's blows were predictable. Her eyes were very blue. Very bluest. If you could only have seen how blue her eyes could be. <laughs> Going on. So... I just uh, spice up your life. I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to um, read a few of these because I like coffee, and this was one of those one of the first times where I really started questioning the relationship between the Dune universe and our universe. Was the first time that coffee showed up, right? And then it just kept happening. Yep. So early, pretty early on for Dune on page forty nine, Paul's talking about the Reverend Mother and. Uh, Thufur Hawa is asking what she said. And Paul says, She said a ruler must learn to persuade and not to compel. She said, He must lay the best coffee hearth to attract the finest men. And, uh, you know, before Duke Duke Leto or Leto is he's getting all his men together for the big trip or to the fight, maybe after they get there, and he's like, Hey, there's coffee for those who want it. It's just this weird little aside right. where uh, there's this huge buildup. They're getting ready. I think that's when they're actually getting ready for the Harkonnen fight. Was that when they were just all in this like room strategizing? Yes. Right, yeah. It's when they're all showing up. He just says, there's coffee for those who want it, the right. Duke said. And I, I'm not exactly sure in my mind exactly when this takes place, but I think that scene in my mind I saw as like, I don't know, a, a very, like almost in an office building because yeah. of the coffee reference. Yes. Like it has a lot of power because it's such a weird uh-huh. thing. I agree. 
Like, why, yeah, why even reference it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I felt like there's a conference table, there's yeah, a dry erase board. Exactly. Everybody uh, hangs their swords up on the wall uh-huh. before they sit down because they're clunky when they're in yeah, their seats. in their rolly chairs. Right. Yeah, that yeah. was a very, very people strange... Are, people are adjusting the height of their chairs, you know, going <laughs> yeah, up and down. Exactly. Yeah. A person's just spinning around in their chair because <laughs> yeah. they're bored, they don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like the next step is a water cooler talk or... Yeah. <laughs> filing tps reports or you know the powdered donuts that are you know people are trying to keep (laughs) off of their clothes of course off their still suits right Mm -hmm. you don't you don't clog they're clogged that thing up with powdered sugar it's not gonna help anybody but yeah it's a very strange yeah thing to bring up yeah i never never got that part either especially because and you're probably getting into this uh, if water is so valuable then why are you making this thing that, that actually it tends to dehydrate you, if I'm not mistaken, uh-huh. in some ways. Um, the still suits might fix that problem, mm-hmm. but but also where are they where are they growing it? Oh, that's explained in the appendix. Oh, I didn't. I don't know. Um, Pardo Keynes, when he's trying the first crops, the first experimental crops to like take root. Yep. On arrakis, date palms, cotton, melons, coffee. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Nice. There's one more. There's so many more references to it, but my absolute, my favorite line in this book um, is one of these references. So after the Harkonnens have attacked the uh, House Atreides, Jessica and Paul are scampering off trying to escape, and Leah Keynes finds them brings him to shelter he he asks first of all i guess um or he just says that oh he he talks to one of his like assistants or whatever and says like hey spice coffee in my quarters please and then later the harkonnens break through where they're all hiding and i'm just gonna read this i should have suspected trouble when the coffee failed to arrive Keen said. <laughs> yep. What? That's how you know. That's that's coffee as a uh, omen of foreboding, in right? Some ways. Or, or lack of coffee. Lack of coffee. It's like yeah, if you walk into a room and there's not coffee available, something's going down. Something's up. Yeah. That's yeah. That's fairly similar to how the hashtag war started. Exactly. From what I remember. Yeah. So I mean, and and, and just to think, like, so in this situation, Keen says to this other guy, like, so they know they're. They're being attacked. But he says, like, hey, go get some coffee, man. Uh, we're going to need it. Yeah. <laughs> like, what happened to that guy? Exactly. He was out, like, he had, like, a French press. And he's like, right. mm-hmm. so he doesn't even hear. He's, 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 he's grinding coffee beans. Oh, he's grinding coffee beans. And, like. He can't hear because he's groaning so loudly. <laughs> like, what are you doing? There? You're going to give away our position, you idiot. Exactly. Well, yeah, because the, the grinder's so loud. Yeah. But he doesn't care. And he's like, you know. Boiling the water, which is valuable. Absolutely. And and meanwhile, I don't know. He gets killed, I guess, <laughs> yeah. and the coffee never arrives. Uh, yeah, and then, and then the people who, I mean, the people that are fighting them, ostensibly like, oh shit, we're not gonna waste water, <laughs> no. and then drink this just hot boiling liquid. <laughs> well, I burned my face, but I need need the water. Yeah, it's going into my still suit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very weird. Such a weird. Such a weird thing, and that you know, it might be. I don't. I don't know. 
but it could be another meta textual thing or think it's outside of the book where Frank Herbert actually just really liked coffee. That's what I'm figuring. It was just like any time that he really needed coffee to keep himself going writing this mm-hmm. immense novel, he's like, I'm putting it in the book. <laughs> I want you people to know what I go through, which is apparently tiredness occasionally. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But, well, since it's spiced coffee, that'll be somewhat different because that gives you this like mm-hmm. prescience also. Yeah. It gives you the ability to see... Yeah. So I don't know if it's just that's that's the best optimal way to get the spice into the system yeah. or what. Well, and, and later on though too, when Paul is challenged in the Fremen community and has to and kills that guy, yep. And that means his wife and kids are Paul's responsibility now. He also inherits his coffee service, so he gets like a bunch of little saucers and plates. I imagine maybe some like doilies. <laughs> <laughs> A pitcher, I don't know. Yeah. Like that's what he gets. It's like here's here's this guy's wife, here's this guy's two kids, they're teenagers, and by the way, here's Don't the forget. Co- it's not and by the way, yeah, yeah. it's here's this coffee set, <laughs> and by the way, you now have kind of a wife and yeah, two right. kids. Yeah. So mm-hmm. congratulations. Hope you enjoy that coffee. So good. You're gonna need it. Because you have to raise two kids. Yeah. Yeah. Coffee. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Apparently so. And uh, on that note, it's time for your listener challenge! Woo-hoo! Uh, this week's listener challenge uh, is in regards to the Coriolis storms on the planet Arrakis. I would say that's any major sandstorm on Arrakis where winds across the open flatlands are amplified by the planet's own revolutionary motion and they reach speeds up to blank kilometers per hour how many kilometers per hour does a Coriolis storm wind reach okay you might say 500 you'd be way off you would be at about 200 short Mm. you'd be exactly 200 short Uh, they reach 700 kilometers per hour so if anybody out there any listener can refute that come up with an answer more correct than 700 Mm -hmm. please uh Call in, Twitter, tweet us, Twitter 3.0. Mm-hmm. Uh, how else can they reach us? We never really addressed that. Uh, fax. Faxes. You can send us uh, a trained bat mm-hmm. with a message on its leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, if you do that, make sure you put something to counterbalance the weight on its one leg because it's tough for bats to fly over. You know, they know. They right. know. I'm sure they know. Uh, yeah. However, you, however you get the message to us, get it to us because I, I want, I want some people challenging us. We mm-hmm. have all these prizes, mm-hmm. and nobody, you know, nobody, nobody's redeeming them. Nobody's a, claiming them. It's a good listener challenge, John. That's a deep cut from Dune. I would say it's on page eight hundred thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. If it were me, but if it's not me, then who knows? Mm-hmm. And that concludes this week's. Listener challenge! Thanks for doing that. I was getting nervous about that, that you uh, hadn't showed up with one yet. Well, you know. That's that's an excellent choice. Good things come to those who wait. Well, I'm glad you said that, because you know what I've been waiting for? Uh, The weekend. Everybody's working for it. I've been working for it. Right. Sandworms. Everybody's waiting for sandworms. Sandworms. Yeah. Can we talk about sandworms? We can talk about sandworms. Oh my gosh. Uh, truth be told, I'm going to put this out there. There was an alternate listener challenge which had to do with the maximum length of the sandworms. Mm. 
but it's more for debate than I think the Coriolis storm speeds are. So. I agree. Yeah, it but. seems like there's a boy. There's some that are kilometers long, or perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Who knows? So sandworms live. Guess where? In worm. The worms. sand. Oh yes, flipped it. Yep. Yeah. I thought that they were sand, and they were they lived in worms. Yeah. But it's yeah. That's a different thing. Okay, that's worm sands. <laughs> Anyways. I don't know. They, they, so the sandworms in Dune, we hear about them first as being these like awful things. They eat, they like devour right. the uh, the equipment. The equipment when people are trying to mine the spice. Yep. Yeah, that's one of the pretty early scenes where Duke oh, Leto yeah. saves uh, saves the crew of one of the sand crawlers, mm-hmm. which is a spice harvester on the planet. Yeah, uh, and so gets everybody back up into the ships, up into the ornithopters, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, they see this giant spice mining plant op- operation center uh, get devoured. Yeah, which is not it's not a small thing. No way. The largest crew uh, works on that thing, mm-hmm. and, and yet the worms even bigger. Yep, man eats it for breakfast or lunch. Uh huh, and then flosses with a. Thopter. Yeah. And then <laughs> has his coffee service later. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Actually, he does. Actually, no, they, water, the water and them don't mix. That's right. Uh, they are... I was going to say, I was gonna say allergic. Poison. Poison yeah. is more appropriate. Well, yeah. They get a allergic rash. Pile. Yeah, exactly. They get hives. I'm going to mess with those. And then they die. And then they die. <laughs> and that's how the book ends. <laughs> the, the real, the real, like... Uh, uh, tragic hero of the book is the sandworms. Yes. Dale. <laughs> the largest sandworm on planet Dune. He drinks he drinks Leah Keen's coffee, coffee yeah, that was yeah. waiting there for him. Mm-hmm. He, he, it was he, made already. It was made yeah. and he's like, oh great. Uh, I get you know a shot of espresso with mm-hmm. my with my Fremen meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, R.I.P. Dale. Mm-hmm. This is the story of Dale, the last sandworm. The largest sandworm. The largest sandworm. Maybe the last one. I don't know. He ate all the other smaller ones. Real, real uh, wormy worm situation. Mm-hmm. The Speaking early, of sandworms, yeah. how many legs do they have? Ha! Not enough. They're gross, disgusting creatures <laughs> with zero legs. They, they, it's too, they too seem, few. They seem um, majestic. I would say grotesque. And I don't know, dumb. Any you know, any negative adjective really, I would apply to them because they have, you know, they they have the absolute worst number of legs you could have. That's less than two. You can't get farther away from two legs than zero. Oh, you know what I mean? I, okay. Yeah. So we we find out though later, I guess, that the Fremen. Can ride these things like but they can ride makers. Makers, <laughs> guess what? What they aren't talking about coffee makers. I thought we were. No, we were talking no, about for like no. the whole time. Those are worms. They makers are worms. Makers. I hate. That's like oh man, I wonder why I hated the makers equally as much as I hated the worms. Yeah, now right. it all makes sense. Yeah, you thought still they, no legs. You thought they were riding on coffee makers. I did. No. No. Yeah, like why would they propel themselves with coffee across mm-hmm. the desert? It seems exactly. really slow. It seems like a waste of water again. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go back into that. 
So leave uh, that one alone. They basically they ride these things like surfboards. Basically, <laughs> yeah. they've got they've got uh, maker so hooks. One of them, yeah, one of them has maker hooks that get on top of this thing, and then everybody else can get on behind it. The guy who's like driving's got these commands that yells like cowbunga. <laughs> Tubular, <laughs> hang ten. Yeah, yeah. And they just surf around the desert on these things. Now, what I didn't understand was when these worms go underground, do they just close their mouths so they don't get sand in their throats? I don't know. Yeah, the propulsion system, I don't know, is really I ever don't addressed. understand the propulsion at all. Because it, well, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We have to ask Frank, but. Can't. R.I.P. Frank. Mm hmm. Uh, maybe maybe that's what Dune Messiah is all about. Just logistics be. about how sandworms. I would read it. Locomotion. I hope it's three thousand pages, just about how they move through the sand. Yeah, yeah. Because I have a lot of questions regarding it. Mainly, such as uh, how do they do it? <laughs> oh, good one. Yeah, that's you know all the rest of them are the same question. <laughs> so, man, that, that works for me. Yeah. What else would you say about sandworms? Just that they're awesome. I would say disgusting. Okay. Tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. Yep. What else do we got? Have we we solved this book? I, I, I feel pretty good about it, actually. Yeah, but have we solved the book? Well. I mean, we, it's not it's like it's a puzzle, but... Who do you think did it? Who done it? I would say Colonel Mustard mm-hmm. in the... Uh, Sitch oh, yeah. with a sandworm. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just ate the whole sitch. Should we say what that means? Yeah, you better. Uh, and I'm not exact. I don't. I don't know the exact definition, but it's, it seems like uh, a, some sort of. It's almost a cave, but it's within like a dune, not dune walls, but I don't know. It's someplace underneath the desert where the. Uh, Fremen live. Yeah, it's a safe place. It's a safe place. Safe <laughs> house. It's their panic room. Mm-hmm. It's like the public library. Yeah. It's a safe place if you get lost. Right. They have lots of books there. If you are a Fremen. Right. But makers or worms, whatever, not there very often. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Colonel Mustard murdered somebody there with a sandworm wow. is actually pretty, yeah, pretty... Uh, noteworthy event. Uh-huh. Yep, that's going to hit all the headlines mm-hmm. in the Fremen papers. Yep. Right, the Daily Fremen. Daily Fremen. You've got the New York Fremen. Mm-hmm. The Fremen Times. You've got the San Diego Fremen Tribune. Mm-hmm. The Fremen Republic. You've got the. the oh yeah, yeah. And the Freeman. Yes. Of Fremen course. Freeman. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to all those papers, Colonel Buster did it. <laughs> well, I've really loved this book. I feel like we've uh, we've gone through our own hero's journey just in reading this book. Absolutely. And um, I'm excited now to watch the movies. That's yeah. our next step. I believe that's what's coming next. So mm-hmm. it's going to be the SFBC PC. And we'll have to do with the book, but we'll not be talking about a book specifically exactly next time yeah we felt like with uh, what 800 and some odd pages right it was a lot to cover in one podcast and I would say we covered half a percent of it we talked about coffee a lot 
Yeah. But that was a big one. As far as I'm concerned, that was what the book was really about. It was the hero's journey of coffee. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, life finds a way. Yep. Coffee finds a way. Mm-hmm. On this planet where almost nothing could grow. Mm-hmm. Coffee can. Exactly. Coffee can. That's the... Hashtag coffee can. You hashtag it, listeners. Mm-hmm. The world needs to hear. Coffee can. Um, well... Should we wrap wrap our way out of this? We should wrap it out. Wrap it up? Wrap it in. I ride makers because I'm a baker. Eat pastries with my coffee. I gotta see if you can serve it to me right now with a French press. With a grinder, drip coffee, talking about coffee, talking about the sea, the sea on Caledon. We don't have a man who's ever seen such things on Arrakis. It's the desert. Don't forget that. Yep. 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 said don't forget the desert but how could you it's everywhere look at look at look at it just look at it then it's everywhere palm wadib i gotta ad lib because i'm rhyming i gotta get uh my timing right that's still talking about the rap it's not a trap on this planet of sand, on this planet of man, blue eyes, ostensibly blue skies, I'm not telling you no lies, I want french fries, but potatoes don't grow, and you know that, I wish they did, I wish that this rap had a lid and I'd close it, once you pop, you just don't stop. Once you got water, you got crops. Agriculture, Liet Kynes. See me rapping in the Fremen Times. That's a paper. Meet your maker. See ya. Bye.
Sail 